0: Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, it is indeed marvelous and wonderful beyond description that you would love us. Father, our hearts are stained with sin. We could not earn our way to you. We had no righteousness of our own. We were your enemies. And yet, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Father, we want to rejoice in that wonderful truth for all of eternity. I pray that those gospel realities would sink into our souls afresh this morning. And I pray as we consider your word and apply them to issues of our day, that you would give us wisdom, discretion, and love for our neighbor. We pray in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Well, this week we are beginning a new sermon series as we begin our fall uh, ministry year here. And this series will not be too long. It'll be about six weeks or so. But it's a series that we needed to do. This series will be a tag team effort between myself and Pastor Luke Ree. We are compelled to discuss the issues surrounding what is called social justice, because we can no longer avoid them. They are mainstream all around us. But they're not only front and center in our culture, they're making significant headway and they are front and center in the evangelical church as well. Social justice is the topic of conversation in most publishing houses, most Christian periodicals. It's found its way into conversations in every major denomination. And I believe that it's not too far off to say these are issues that have made their way into your home conversation. You've no doubt talked about these things that are making headlines. You've had discussions around the dinner table. Things such as the LGBTQ movement, the transgender debate, and the distinction between sex assigned at birth and chosen gender. Or things such as The Black Lives Matter movement, police brutality, and the problem of whiteness. Now, many of these issues were not making headlines a few years ago like they are today, but we now in 2020, these are a part of the national conversation and might as say even local conversation all around us. And so let me tell you where we are going in this series, just to kind of lay the roadmap map before us. Today, I am introducing this series and laying some groundwork for us. Next week, we'll be looking particularly at the topic of justice, as is found in the name social justice. What is justice? How does the Bible define it? And is it the same thing that our culture's talking about? In the following week, Pastor Luke will address racism, defining it biblically in comparison with how our society is defining it and addressing all of the issues surrounding racism in our current cultural conversation. The following message, Pastor Luke will do an exposition of Ephesians chapter 2, in which he will be showing how different ethnic groups are united and reconciled in Jesus Christ. I will then return the following week to address the issues of sexuality and gender. And then Luke will finish the series by talking about what the mission of the church in society is to be. What are we as Christians and as a church collectively, what are we to be about? What has God left us here in this and this earth to do, and what are we to be doing in the midst of this world? Now, some of you may be thankful that we're addressing these issues. You've had many conversations about them, and you're looking forward to an evaluation from a biblical standpoint. Others of you may be still scratching your head and wondering why we may be taking time to do this. And so what I want to do this morning is address... The goals that we are hoping to accomplish as a result of this series. Particularly, we're going to look at four goals that Luke and I are hoping to accomplish in the, as a result of this sermon series. And so let's, let's begin to look at these each individually, hopefully give you some understanding and of where we're going and why we're addressing these issues. The first goal that we have is that we would think biblically about cultural issues. That we would think biblically about cultural issues. And this brings us to the issue of worldview. Some of you may be very familiar with that kind of terminology, worldview terminology. Others of you, maybe not so much. It's simply states this, that everybody has a worldview. It is the lens by which they see the world and which they interpret the world. A worldview is composed of the ideas and beliefs that enable people to make sense of the world around them. Therefore, because everyone has a worldview, a way that they see the world, every single cultural product, everything that people create or produce is the product of a worldview. Every YouTube video, every Facebook post, every Netflix show, every podcast, every book, every news article or broadcast comes from a particular worldview. There's underlying beliefs and ideas that filter into that, those cultural products. There is no such thing as neutral. A worldview-free sort of cultural product. And here's the thing that we need to realize as Christians is that every single worldview either is, comes from the position of belief or unbelief. Either trust in the true living God or a rejection of the true living God. You can't stand in the middle between belief and rejection or belief and rebellion. There's no neutrality. There's no one foot on one side of the line, another foot on the other side of the line. There's either a worldview that confesses Jesus is Lord or there's a worldview that confesses I am Lord. And so, the Bible declares that at the core of every single worldview is a religious commitment. Even for those who claim to be are religious or atheist, they confess themselves as Lord. There is some sort of, worship and subservience. And so the Bible paints a picture in which there's no neutrality. There's no gray areas here. There's light or dark. There's belief or unbelief. There's no middle ground. Now, the vast majority of information and entertainment that we digest on a daily basis is is created by those who have an unbelieving worldview. Now, this doesn't mean that we reject it all, but it is means rather that we should be discerning, that we should know that and interpret what we read and what we consume in terms of media from a discerning point of view. You see, unbelievers can, that create these things can say a lot of true things, a lot of observations about what's going on in the world, about uh, economic policy, all sorts of things but they can also say things that are untrue because of their pre-commitments, because of their fundamental beliefs. For example, because they have rejected Christ and His Word, they don't tell the truth about the origin of the universe or about where we as people come from. They attribute it to something other than the magnificent creative power of the living God. But you see, as slaves of Jesus Christ, as those who are followers of our Savior. We must learn to think through all things from a Christian worldview. As we live in this world and this culture, we must be discerning. We must be asking, what does Jesus think of this? And how does he want his bride, the church, to address these issues? Not just, how do I feel about them, but what does the Lord direct me to? And so as it relates to the issues of social justice, we want to help you navigate this terrain Christianly, from a Christian biblical perspective. You see, the church and followers of Jesus Christ cannot think like the world. We cannot address things in our society, in our lives, like the world addresses them because that would be taking on the fundamental pre-commitments and worldview of those who have rejected Christ rather than saying, no, Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to live out of that. We must start there. Now, there may be much that we overlap and agree upon with an unbelieving world, but fundamentally, we have a different philosophical basis for our beliefs, namely the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, we must think like the Lord. The scriptures tell us, as believers in Jesus, that we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, says that we're to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And as we looked at last week, in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, our minds must be prepared for action. we have got to engage our minds and think about things well. So how do we think like Christ in this current cultural moment? Well, he gave us his word to do just that. That's why we must be thinking biblically. His word is sufficient to communicate the mind of God. In the scriptures, he has revealed all that we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. And this is why we've entitled the series, Social Justice and the Bible. We want to think biblically about these issues. Now, there are two primary categories of responses that I see among Christians as it relates to these current issues. On one side, I see what I've entitled annoyance. Annoyance. On the other side, I see what I've entitled compassion. Again, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about Christians here. On the annoyance side, Christians are growing tired of everything being about social justice. It's now in politics, it's in sports, it's in their workplace, it's everywhere. And while they have an appetite for some discussion, they're now way past that and just kind of annoyed that it keeps coming up. Now, the problem with this annoyance position is that it often lacks the sympathy for those who are truly hurting. It often lacks a desire to listen to people's stories, to hear about their experience. And even when that experience and story is told, it can often be dismissive. And while there must be a robust discussion about these issues before us, Christians must have a heart for people. We must not grow calloused to the needs around us. We see sin on an individual level, we see sin on a societal level, and we must learn to have hearts that grieve over sin wherever we see it, grieve over the effects of sin wherever we see it, and not gloss over it. All the ways that sin affects this world should break our hearts. You know, that's the annoyance side. On the other side, many Christians today become concerned about the issues of social justice uh, out of compassion for people. They have a big heart. They hear about people that are hurting. They hear people crying out and they want to do something. They want to come alongside them. They hear about injustices and, and pain and prejudice. And they, and they want to wrap their arms around them and help be a part of the solution to change those things. And that impulse is good. Having heart and compassion. I just talked about that. But our Christian impulse cannot end at compassion. Compassion. Our, our, our Christian impulse cannot be encapsulated completely only in compassion. Our heads must be engaged as well as our hearts. We must discern, for example, what true love is. We want to love our neighbor. We want to love these people. Well, what does true love really look like? We must discern between what people want and what they need. There can be a big difference, as we know often with our children, what they want and what they need. We must discern between truth and error. We must know what is right and what is wrong. We must discern between emotional arguments and rational ones, ones that simply appeal to how somebody feels versus those that have substantive arguments behind them. We must learn to listen and learn to speak with grace. And see I believe that many who come and approach these issues from a heart of compassion they sit and they listen and they absorb and they want to hear what the what these hurting people have to say and unfortunately they often end up adopting and imbibing many of the world's ideologies in that process in an effort to address the wrongs in society they end up walking down an unbiblical path now they use biblical words because many cuz the, the bible knows how to speak to sin and knows how to deal with hurts and pains and injustices and so there's there's much from the scriptures that can be used to speak to these issues but what's happening is that they're taking words and concepts from the scriptures and merging it with unbiblical ideologies to make those things sound more Christian. They've got big hearts, but they're often adopting wrong ways of thinking. And the Bible clearly warns the church that we need to be on guard against adopting these kinds of, this kinds of worldly thinking. In fact, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, I'll start in verse 6. Paul writes, Therefore... This warning here in verse 8 alerts us to the reality that it's possible for Christians to be taken captive. It's possible for Christians to be taken captive. His concern here, as we saw in verses 6 and 7, is that these believers would be rooted in Christ. That just as their roots were there, they continue to grow up in him, see, receiving their nutrients and life from Christ. But he recognized that there's a threat to that. There's a threat And that is that they could be taken captive in their minds to ideas and philosophies that are not according to Christ. You know, it's been said that discernment is not just discerning between right and wrong, but it's discerning between right and almost right. Right and almost right. Because, you see, that almost right... Even though it looks good, smells good, a lot of things might seem good about it, at its core, it's fundamentally not according to Christ. That's where our discernment needs to be picked up. That's what we need to see. Now, as we go through the series, we will document how some evangelicals are being taken captive in this area. Now, our goal is not to simply name-call and put people down, but to enable you to be alerted to what to listen for, what is almost right but isn't right. And we're not saying that people that may be taken captive in a certain area are not Christians or that they've abandoned the faith or that everything they've ever said or, or written is unbiblical We're simply addressing the concerning trends out there in these particular areas. So this is our first and really uh, one of our major goals of this series is to help all of us to think biblically about cultural issues, particularly these these issues that are confronting us every single day. But the second goal, the second goal for us is that we would unify on the truth of the Bible— that we as a church, photo Bible church, would unify on the church or on the truth of the Bible. Now, no doubt within our congregation, we have people who take different positions on these issues. Some of the differences may simply be slight. Differences of nuance. Difference, differences of emphases. But others, there may be more significant difference. And choosing to act in different ways, post different things on social media, and whatnot. But here's the thing. We as a church, as we think about these issues, as we seek to discern them biblically, must seek to strengthen the bonds that tie us together. We cannot allow these issues that are dissecting and splitting apart a society to split apart our fellowship. Because you see, We, as a church, must be united around the things that matter, around doctrine, around the truth. It is the the doctrine that binds us together. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, slain on our behalf. We believe it is His blood that cleanses us from all sin. It's His blood that unites us together in one body. These are truths that have brought us together and keep us together, friends. We cannot forget that. Because, you see, one of the results of this social justice movement is that it divides people into different identity groups, and it pits those groups against one another. Perhaps you've heard these pitted against each other. Oppressor and oppressed. Rich versus poor. Transgender versus cisgender. Male versus female. Black versus white. Gay versus straight. These are categories that are being made all the time and are seeking to have people identify into these groups and to split off away from one another, identifying with their particular group. And these divisions threaten to divide relationships in our homes and in our church if we're not thinking about what binds us together biblically. In the church, We identify with each other not because of some outward identifying markers, not because of some social class, not because of anything other than our unity in Jesus Christ. That Jesus binds us together. Our unity is spiritual and that unity supersedes any and all differences. Amen? That is what brings us together as a church. And our prayer is that as we Evaluate the social justice movement through a biblical lens that our bonds would continue to be strengthened. That even as we might have robust discussion and maybe even have differences of opinions on certain issues, that we would come back at the end of the day to what unites us together, not to what maybe draws us apart. I want you to flip to Ephesians, go back a couple books to Ephesians chapter 4, if you were already in Colossians. Ephesians chapter 4. Just be be reminded of our unity here again. Ephesians chapter 4. Start in verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Stop there. The point I want you to see here is, number one, that unity in the church, verse three, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, flows out of us living gospel-centered lives. Verse one says that he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. What is that calling? He's defined that in chapters one through three. Is the call of the gospel. It's the fact that Christ has called us and set us apart unto his own. And therefore, because of the work of the gospel in our lives, we should then be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Living gospel centered lives should result in a unified church. But secondly, the thing I want you to notice here is that unity in the church is founded upon common doctrine. Common doctrine, we see this in verses 4 through 6, where he's emphasizing the oneness, right? One body, one spirit, uh, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. We come together on these issues, on who the triune God is, on what he's done. And therefore, we find our unity. And thirdly, as we've seen in verse 3, unity in the church must be eagerly maintained eagerly maintained unity what we can deduce from this statement is that if we aren't eager to maintain it if we aren't actively seeking to maintain unity that we can unravel that that cords that tie us can begun begin to fray and we can begin to splinter and to split unfortunately the history of the church uh, has caused the term church split to be something that we've all voiced at one time or another in our lives. It's all too common. And therefore, unity in the church must be eagerly maintained. So as we go through these issues, we want to be reminded that we stand together in Christ. It is His blood that binds us together, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the building of the church. So we must be reminded of that. Our third goal in going through this, our third goal is that we would engage lovingly with family and friends. That we would engage lovingly with family, friends, and you could add acquaintances and even strangers. What is the foundation for this? Why do we engage others with a loving spirit? Well, the book of Genesis establishes the dignity of every human being when it declares that man is made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image. And because God made man in his image, all people have intrinsic worth from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. From the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. This means that everyone we see, and even those we can't in the womb, are worthy of our care, compassion, and concern. No human lives are expendable. No one is more valuable than others because all are made in God's image. It's foundational to how we see the world. It's foundational to how we view each other, how we view those that show up on the nightly news and that we see as we scroll through our Facebook feeds. Our prayer, as Luke and I go through these issues, that we would grow in our love for fellow image bearers. That we would learn to have big hearts for those who, like us, are made in the image of God and are of equal worth and dignity. That we do not... Grow callous to any segment of society, to do what we do not have hard hearts towards our neighbors, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. We need to treat others with respect, even those who disagree with us, even those who are sinning, even those who are sinning against us. Jesus said, remember, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And so the argument goes from the greater to the lesser that if we're to even pray and love for our enemies, then those who aren't really quite our enemies but just disagree with us, we should love them too. We should have big hearts. And so friends, we must engage others. We must open up conversations. You see, this is not the time to sit back into our echo chamber with those who simply agree with us and to and to simply Uh, reaffirm what we believe. We need to engage in conversation. Engage family members, friends, others in our body, in our small groups. Talk through these issues. We might discover differences, but we need to lovingly engage those conversations and not avoid them. You see, our society is resorting to pulling into their respective corners and just start screaming at each other. And I think that we're all pretty fed up with that heightened screaming that just happens non-stop well it can change with us we can have loving conversations with those around us we've got to recapture the practice of loving respectful dialogue so how do we engage with people on such divisive topics I want to direct our attention to two passages this morning. The first is in Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 3. These are important verses for us to remember. Titus, chapter 3. What I want you to see as we read these verses in Titus 3 is Paul's recognition of how believers are to operate in an unbelieving world and what motivates that. Look in Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to, uh, according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, we live in a world that is hating one another, Paul describes it very accurately for the first century and for the 21st. And yet, he calls us as believers in Christ to show perfect courtesy to all people, to not be quarrelsome, to speak evil of no one. This is a tall order. But notice his reasoning. Why does he say that Christians should operate this way? Verse 3 says, 4. For we used to be of that. That used to be the way that we live. We can understand why they're acting that way. We can understand why they're driven by their sin the way that they are. Because we were once there. And we recognize that we've been saved by the grace of God. Not because of anything that we've done. We can't act proudly and boastfully to these unbelievers who may be acting in hateful ways because we're in our position simply by the grace of God. The gospel should so shape our thinking that we can lovingly go to those we disagree with and those who reject the truth and be able to show perfect courtesy and not quarrel and not speak any evil. Let's look at the second passage, James chapter 3. A few books to the right, James chapter 3. Because what we're talking about here in having conversations is our mouths, our tongues. And James 3 has a good warning, a good instruction for all of us on how we should be using our tongues. Let's begin in chapter, or verse, James 3, verse 5, the second half, where it says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire That as redeemed people, we can't control our tongue in, in our own strength. James makes it clear, no human being can control the tongue. We must rely upon the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. We know that left up to ourselves, our tongue can put us in a heap of trouble and cause lots of damage, like sword thrusts, the Proverbs call it. We've all felt those sword thrusts from a tongue. We've all given those sword thrusts. And so if, if we are going to have only blessing come out of our mouth, blessing to God and blessing to our fellow man instead of cursing, then we must cry out to God to help us to control our tongues. Give us constraint, O oh God. Help us to bless those who are made in your image. Notice that James explicitly, verse 9, harkens back to Genesis to say this is why we speak to people with blessing because they're made in the image and likeness of God. And as we look at these two passages about how we're to interact with others, we need to remember that these don't just refer to physical interactions, but also digital ones. Texting, social media, what we say, words we produce, all fall under this biblical instruction that we don't speak evil of anybody, that we are not quarreling, that we're showing perfect courtesy to all people. We must learn to have open dialogue with those around us. Christians are typically really good at making declarations that shut down discussion, and we just say things because we believe them to be true. And everyone else at the table kind of sits there, going, "Well, I don't really agree with that, but I'm not really sure how to uh, to say that without this turning into a fireball of a dinner conversation." And uh, and so we don't have any dialogue. We don't have any conversation. And I think it's because we're not very good at asking questions. We assume what other people might hold to. And so we need to be better at asking questions. I'm reminded of what my predecessor, Pastor David, would often say Accusations harden the heart, but questions prick the conscience. We need to use, pull out the tool of the question to help us move conversation forward. And the Proverbs give us some good guidance on these. I want to remind you just of of, of a few Proverbs for us. First is Proverbs 18, verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. We must be good listeners. I know I have grown and need to grow a lot more in this area of listening and asking questions, not making assumptions and declarations. Because you see, the answer or the the response that we give to our friend, family, or stranger is going to be different if we listen carefully. We want to give the right word. We want to speak the truth, not just the the, the right truth, but the right truth in the right way. Speak truth in a way that's going to be helpful. It's going to win our friend or our family member. Rem- remember Proverbs 25, verse 11, that says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Which is, is saying that the words that are spoken at the right time are beautiful are valuable, it's rewarding, it's prized. They're thankful for giving a fitly spoken word. Proverbs 16, verse 23 and 24. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Friends, we want to give health to others. We want to give sweetness to others. We want to bring the truth of God's word in a a winsome way. And so as we go through these issues, again, they are divisive in our society, but we must learn to be truth ambassadors, not just who know how to proclaim it from the soapbox, but know how to lovingly proclaim it with an arm wrapped around the person next to us. Be gracious speakers of God's word. Truth is good, but the whole package is, is grace and truth as embodied in Jesus Christ, right? Grace and truth. Well, this leads us to our final goal of the series. The final goal of what we're looking to accomplish and what we pray for would result as looking at these issues in the form before is that we would trust in the sufficiency of God's word. Trust in the sufficiency of God's word. This world is clamoring for answers to the problems that surround us. People are protesting for change. They're rioting for change. And we need to know how it is that we need to go about bringing about the right change. How do we as believers think about this? What is the solution the Bible has to offer? And the thing is, is we as evangelicals, as those who believe the gospel and believe the Bible, cannot borrow the world's playbook. We cannot borrow the strategies that the world puts forward for how to solve these issues. We must be looking to the Scriptures alone. You see, one of the defining beliefs of the Reformers, and for us today, is called sola scriptura, Latin for Scripture alone. They taught, and we affirm, that the Bible alone is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. This this means that nothing else is needed in these arenas. To know how to be saved, we don't need the Bible plus something else. The Bible is enough. And friends, this is an important doctrine for each one of us to affirm in our own hearts and our own lives. Do you trust the Bible? Do you trust the sufficiency of the Bible that the Bible is enough to give you guidance for how to live your life and for how for us to order society? The Bible is sufficient to teach us where we and the rest of the universe came from. It's sufficient to teach us who we are and why we exist. To teach us how humans should interact and treat one another. On how our hearts work and why we do the things that we do. It's sufficient to teach us about sin and why people do bad things. It's sufficient to teach us who God is and why He does what He does. It's sufficient to teach us how we can be saved and how we can be transformed and changed. And it's sufficient to teach us where our ultimate destiny lies. These are just a sampling of truths that the Bible is sufficient to teach us. But you notice it involves the areas of knowledge known as theology, the study of God, anthropology, the study of man, who we are, and soteriology or salvation, how we can be saved. We must live out in our daily lives, the belief and the doctrine in the sufficiency of Scripture. But there have been attacks upon the sufficiency of Scripture. Not everyone have believed it, and many within the quote-unquote church have sought to introduce ideas and whatnot that, is su- that has eroded the trust in the sufficiency of the Bible. Back in the 16th century with the Reformers, they were battling against the Roman Catholic Church that taught that in order to be saved, in order to, in order to uh, have salvation— you needed not only the Bible, but you also needed the traditions of the church. It was the Bible plus something. And therefore, implicitly teaching that the Bible alone was not sufficient, which is why the Reformers coined sola scriptura, scripture alone. In more recent times, the sufficiency of scripture has been attacked in the realm of counseling. With the rise of secular psychology, Christians began to doubt whether the Bible could really help them change. They began to look to secular philosophies of psychology to understand themselves, their history, and why they do what they do, rather than looking to the Bible for understanding who they are and why they do what they do. Christians began to believe that only those trained in psychology or psychotherapy could help them deal with their problems, and fundamentally, this was an abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture. Today, We believe the sufficiency of the scriptures is under attack in this area of social justice. Christians are turning to unbiblical philosophies and ideologies. They're doing this to provide an explanation for why, uh, to explain why the world is the way that it is. They're doing this because they believe there is something to be gained from these systems of thinking. Now, we will be looking at these ideologies in the coming weeks carefully, but the point I want you to see now is that... uh, by adopting these unbiblical ways of thinking, they are denying or eroding the sufficiency of Scripture in this area. As we go through this series, Pastor Luke and I will be appealing to the Bible, all 66 books of this, for sufficient for us to know how to order our lives individually and personally, as well as corporately in society. How humans should interact with one another. We believe this wholeheartedly, that the Bible is sufficient to address the concerns that we see today. But we need to be clear about what sufficiency means and what it doesn't. Let me give you a definition of sufficiency of Scripture, just as as a doctrine. The sufficiency of Scripture means that the Bible contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. For trusting Him, for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. And so that means a few things. Number one, it means that while the Bible speaks to all areas of life and all realms of knowledge, it's not sufficient in all those areas. For example, the Bible gives us a framework for understanding this whole planet and cosmos. But it's, it's not sufficient to teach us everything we need to know about biology or physics or mathematics. So, note when we say the sufficiency of Scripture and the Bible is enough, we're not saying to throw out every single book and every single textbook because all we need is the Bible for everything. We're, We're understanding where the Bible claims to be sufficient and where it doesn't. Conversely, just because the Bible is not the only source on a subject doesn't mean it has nothing to say on the matter. For example, the Bible doesn't claim to be sufficient to educate you on all there is to know about astronomy. But that doesn't mean the Bible contributes nothing to that discipline. We need to recognize that even though the Bible doesn't speak to everything in every area of knowledge, it does have something to say in every area of knowledge. Now, it's important to note also that what the Bible does speak to, it speaks to authoritatively. In other words, it doesn't just throw out suggestions that, oh, you might want to take this into account. No, where it speaks, it speaks authoritatively. Again, using astronomy as an example even though the Bible doesn't say much about astronomy, what it does say that God created the stars and the planets is both authoritative and accurate. And therefore, all study in that discipline must begin on that foundation because the Bible speaks authoritatively and accurately in that area. And finally, as we clarify what sufficiency is and isn't, we must say that the Bible is sufficient not only in its explicit explicit statements, such as you shall not murder, but also in the conclusions that can be deduced from Scripture. Not just explicit statements, but also conclusions that can be deduced based upon principles. Theologian and author Joel Beakey put it this way, I think is, is so helpful to help us understand this. He writes, "...the Bible does not address every conceivable moral situation in its laws, but sets forth principles of morality and wisdom." so that we, by the spirit-illuminated reasoning and the fear of God, may deduce God's will for us. We want to know what God's will is. And the Bible gives us the principles that we need to be able to figure out what God's will is in any given situation. That is what we must affirm when we say the sufficiency of Scripture. It tells us how we can live. The Bible is all that we need. For us to live God-honoring lives according to the will of God, we need only to follow the Bible. Author George Beakey again says this. He says, The Bible is truly God's complete, God's complete moral and doctrinal instruction for the church. The Bible teaches this all over that the Bible itself is sufficient for these things. I just remind you of Deuteronomy 4, Proverbs 30, and Revelation 22 that gives the warning not to add or to take away from anything within these books. It recognizes that it can't be perfected, and neither can anything be taken away from it. It is complete, it is whole, it is perfect. I just want you to take you to Second Timothy, and this is the, the last place we'll turn this morning, Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Uh, starting verse 14, Paul writing to Timothy, says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, we could spend a lot of time in this passage, but I just want you to recognize, number one, that the, the scriptures were sufficient, able to, to, to bring salvation to Timothy. That's what Paul says, that you're acquainted with the sacred writings. These sacred writings are able to make you wise unto salvation. And then he goes on to say that these scriptures are God-breathed, they're the product of God. He, is, he has produced these and therefore are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We need all that we need to correct us, to show us the way to live God-honoring lives from the Word of God. Friends, this is what we as Bible-believing Christians must affirm and reaffirm in our hearts time and time again, that we can trust the Bible to point us in the right direction, that we, here he says, the man of God, speaking of the servant, the, 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 the minister, but by application to all Christians, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every good thing that we need to do on this earth, we can be equipped for through the scriptures. That's so why I ask you, do you believe the Bible is sufficient? Do you believe it wholeheartedly into every area of your life? Our, we pray that as we go through this, that belief would be Strengthened. And for our purposes in this series, we believe the Bible is sufficient to address these social justice issues. It's sufficient to address racism. It's sufficient to give God's plan for how to reconcile people of different ethnicities. It's sufficient to speak to the issues of identity, gender, and sexuality. The Bible is sufficient. I'll end with a, with a quote from the great theologian of the 20th century, John Murray. He says this, Our dependence upon Scripture is total. If Scripture is the inscripturated revelation of the gospel and of God's mind and will, if it is the only revelation of this character that we possess, then it is this revelation in all its fullness, richness, wisdom, and power that must be applied to man in whatever religious, moral, mental situation he is to be found. It is because we have not esteemed and prized the perfection of Scripture and its finality that we have resorted to other techniques, expedients, and methods of dealing with the dilemma that confronts us all if we are alive to the needs of this hour. Friends, we can trust the Bible. We can trust it to deal with our lives and to deal with our society, even in this hour. Therefore, beginning next week, we're going to begin to address these issues, particularly from the lens of the Bible. Now, as I close, I just simply want to say that Luke and I want to hear from you throughout this series. If you have questions, things you'd like us to address, questions you have about what we've said, please email us. Uh, Please contact us and Uh, We want to be in dialogue with you about these issues. So, um, again, please reach out to us. Encourage you to talk amongst one another as you seek to dialogue over these issues and as we collectively, together, seek to live biblically in this present hour. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is truly perfect and good, complete. It's all that we need to know your will and for us to live according to it. I pray, O Father, as we seek to address these issues and seek to follow you as biblically-minded Christians in this day, that you would give us wisdom and discretion. Give us knowledge and understanding of your word. Help us to think through the things that are being said by ourselves, by others. And help us, Father, please, to speak with gracious words. May our words be like the sweetness of the honeycomb. May they be seasoned with salt as we seek to proclaim Christ in a lost and dying world. And we'll give you the praise as we see our lives controlled by your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.